millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 307. of U.S. workers are feeling some degree of burnout. And it's not just some snowflake generation, as you might hear accusations, but it's everyone. Hi, and welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. It's the podcast dedicated to your personal and your professional growth. My name is Jeff. I believe that if you desire to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then you need to be an intentional, consistent learner. And that begins with reading. The podcast is designed to help you narrow this reading list. And I try to bring you the key insights and main ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And today that includes Mr. Bruce Daisley. He's author of the book, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, 30 Hacks for Bringing Joy to Your Job. I'll be asking Bruce to share about how you can impact the culture within your organization, even when you're not the one at the top, the effects of working long hours and how you can shorten the week, ways to cut the length of many of your meetings in half, and lots more. In the book, Bruce answers questions like, does a lunch break create more productivity? Is it true that you can improve team performance simply by moving the location of the coffee maker? And how walking meetings can be a better alternative to the usual conference room. Work culture, unfortunately, doesn't work for most of us, but it doesn't have to be that way, Bruce says. Hey, a quick note. I wanted to let you know that I'm accepting new speaking opportunities in the second half of 2020. If you, your conference, or organization is looking for a speaker on the topics of personal and professional growth, the benefits of intentional and consistent reading, or say the five things all successful people have in common, I encourage you to reach out to me, Jeff, at readtoleadpodcast.com, or you can visit my website, readtoleadpodcast.com slash speaker. Bruce Daisley is the former European vice president of Twitter and host of the top business podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I have found my podcast competing for position against Bruce's quite often. Uh, He has worked for some of the world's uh, biggest media companies, including Google and YouTube, and is dedicated to making work better and using evidence to come up with solutions. His new book is called, named after his podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, 30 Hacks for Bringing Joy. To your job. Can you believe it? Joy. Bruce, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept, isn't it? In joy in our jobs, it sort of, it begs the question, dare we even expect joy in our jobs? <laughs> exactly. Well, well, to that, there's there's a quote in the introduction of the book that that, that caught my attention. There, there's a lot of, of things Bruce says here that will catch your attention. And, and he's got science uh, oftentimes uh, to back it up. But one of those quotes is what you're talking about. Modern work is getting worse. Uh, talk, if you would, Bruce, about the two trends you're seeing that are impacting uh, the nature of work and the the psychological impact those those trends are having on us. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the first instance, the the idea that you know, it's talking about a trend of the the fact that work has transformed from being a place to 
a a a verb i mean i guess it's always been a verb but work is increasingly no longer specifically a location mm. and and i know that that's immensely self-evident but one of the consequences of that is that we found ourselves working far more than we ever might have imagined even 10 15 years ago so mm. the w- one of the pieces of evidence that i was really taken with was the idea that in the last 15 years the average working day has gone up from seven and a half hours a day to nine and a half hours a day and it's gone up it's sort of crept up invisibly it's crept up without anyone observing and We've we've found ourselves answering emails while we we sit on the sofa. We've found ourselves answering emails just uh, as we, the first thing we wake up in the morning. I think more than half of us check our our emails first thing in the morning. We've found ourselves just answering these elements of work communication more than ever before and and that matters simply because when we look at the evidence and i think you know this is one of the critical things when we look at the evidence of this it starts painting an unhealthy picture and and i guess you know there's a a parallel with looking at the evidence i think over the last few years we've seen the way we think about sleep has been affected by the evidence previously i think it was we, we almost regarded sleep as an elective thing that the amount of sleep you got was was just really based on the amount you enjoyed it. And what we've discovered in the last few years was that the benefit of enhanced neuroscanning and, and sort of brain science has allowed us to really start looking at the impact of sleep. And it's allowed us to be more specific about the scientific benefits. And I do think work is having some is, is somewhere along a parallel journey. So one of the things that we can observe is that people who check their emails for two hours a day mm. outside of their scheduled working hours. And I suspect that's far more of us than we might probably want to admit. But people who check their emails for two hours a day outside of work, if we categorized stress into sort of four levels of stress, you know, four tiers of the cake, three quarters of us who check our emails for two hours a day outside of work are on the highest quadrant of stress. Mm. So we've we've really systematized stress and and all of us you know we find ourselves very easily reaching for the response if someone says how's things going we we very easily find ourselves saying busy you know yeah it's, it's hectic it's busy because we we just live in this really um pressured stress zone and the reason why any of that matters is if we project forwards we all find it difficult to imagine what we'll be doing in 10 years and what our jobs will look like in 10 years because just these things the human brain isn't really set up to to deal with that degree of uncertainty but the one thing that is almost certain is that computers will probably be doing more of the routine boring predictable parts of our jobs leaving space for us to use a bit more of our ingenuity a little little bit more of our inventiveness we're often scared to say that we are creative people but a little bit more of our creativity and we'll find ourselves as time goes on having to draw on that guile and that initiative and that creativity the one thing that really matters therefore about the the fact that we've systematized stress is that all of the evidence is that stress seems to kill our capacity to be creative. Mm. And so unless we sort of look at these things together, unless we're conscious of the fact that that stress and creativity sort of operate in opposition to each other, then by allowing ourselves to feel perpetually stressed, we're really Mm. preventing minds and our bodies from being ready for, for what the future of work looks like. 
if I'm parsing your words correctly, to be mindful, in other words, that if we're going to survive the consequences of uh, artificial intelligence, we need to nurture creative lines of work. Uh, but that's harder to do when we're constantly connected, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Especially as we delve into a little bit of how our brains actually come up with ideas, our mm. brains actually think. One of the things that was really instructive for me was that I spent some time looking at one of the ways that ideas form in our head. And interestingly, one of the ways that ideas form is not necessarily through periods of intense focus, but actually the opposite, moments of, of unfocused, moments of sort of daydreaming, moments of really sort of not not really being in the in the moment. I, I was reminded of this when I saw Aaron Sorkin. He's he's just right now. I've seen some coverage. He's got a new version of To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway, and he's got he's got a track record of incredible TV and film productions like Moneyball, mm. like a you know like The West Wing. And he realised he was having his best ideas. So I guess he's he's trade his his ideas and, and creative thought. He realized he was having his best ideas, not when he was frowning into his laptop screen, but when he was, when he was in the shower and he said, um, interestingly, his solution to that was he had a shower installed in the corner of his office. He says he has six to eight showers a day. <laughs> now I'm not suggesting that anyone listening should adopt that as their personal approach, but it is a reminder that sometimes the things that provoke us into having ideas are not necessarily intense period of serious productivity, but often when we, we see the few ideas, a few thoughts in our head and allow them to bubble. Mm. Well, if you're listening to this conversation and you're thinking, well, I'm not a boss, maybe I manage a few people, but a lot of decisions are made by people above me, uh, you, you, you may be concerned that there's little you can do. But, but, but Bruce, you suggest that even if we're rank and file, I mean, the whole book really is about the regular employee making an impact on the culture, right? Very much so. And I think, you know, I found this because throughout my career, I've I've been interested, irrespective of whether I was the young new starter or whether I was the, the boss, uh, I've been interested in the dynamics of teams. Why do some teams feel like they've got more just energy, kinetic energy to them and others feel quite labored, they feel unhappy. And I was, I was really, I was really intrigued. What were the ingredients? And what I discovered when I started looking into this, largely my approach here was I was thinking I wanted to create something that was like a cookbook that someone who <laughs> might be the boss might not be the boss but someone who he's trying to work out the way to make the team they work in feel more connected, maybe more like that team that they used to work in, maybe more like the team that one of their friends works in. I wanted anyone to be able to reach in and see what the science was that underpinned those things. And so what you discover very quickly is that teams that feel connected, they feel like they've got what's sometimes called psychological safety. So the ability to sort of trust each other, to the ability to be honest with each other, that there's there's an art, there's an essence to establishing that psychological safety. And a lot of the roadmap for this has been laid out by other people. So, mm. you know, I was fortunate to speak to people who are in the, the military special services, people who worked in hospitals. This isn't just about working in office jobs with a laptop. I, I spoke to people in hospitals, people in retail, and I was really taken with the pattern of what characterizes a good team seems to be be quite common throughout very different industries. 
Bruce, I'd love for you to t- describe, if you would, how you've structured and, and divided the book. You can take it from beginning to end, but you don't necessarily have to do that, right? No, very much so. And I don't know if you're like me, but I buy I buy so many books with <laughs> a sense of optimism where I'm, de- I'm definitely going to read these three books. And when I read them, people will better get ready because I'm going to be a force to be reckoned with. You know, you, you find yourself buying these books and they gradually make a pile at the side of my bed. And then eventually the losing book gets relegated away from the side of the bed somewhere else. Mm. And so I was really taken with that. I was thinking, well, you know, an unread book can never change anything. So and need to make a book that feels easy and inviting and and maybe you know there's a bit of humor in it (laughs) and it sort of invites people to maybe try one chapter you know there's a chapter on walking meetings right and that's something that's very easy to do it's very small and what i merely tried to do on that one for example is give you the science of walking meetings tell you the benefits of them give you a couple of serving suggestions the way that you might set about doing it the critical thing with something like walking meetings is that we are innately, we, we're all quite awkward. We're quite, we're sort of, at moments, suggesting to maybe a friend, a colleague, a boss that you'll take the next 30 minutes as a walk it might seem like a peculiar suggestion. Mm. And so all I wanted to do was give someone a little bit of evidence that hopefully encouraged someone to make the leap with you. I was particularly taken with um, one of the, the only members of the, the New York Mafia whoever took the stand in a court case was asked what the approach of the mafia was when it came to privacy. And he said, we never talk in a car. We never talk in a club. We never talk in a room. We never talk in a a hotel. We only talk when we're walking. So that was interesting because Mm -hmm. then you think, okay, so if the New York mafia are trying to preserve secrecy by walking, then none of us should feel self-conscious about talking about next year's marketing plan while we're we're out walking. (laughs) And it might be that all we do is we walk around the office. It might be that we actually hit the sidewalk and we we walk to a nearest coffee store. But it's it's really just about trying to find a way to feel, I think, less oppressed by our jobs, less sort of exhausted by them. And so that was it when your your question was how I structured the book. Well, the, the critical thing for me was that quite often I was just interested and improving workplace culture. Mm. So what could any of us do to make our workplaces more enjoyable? And what I discovered, one nonprofit chatted to me and they said, you know, we've tried to make our workplace better. And the way we set about doing it is we invited everyone to a three hour meeting. And <laughs> and I said, right, okay, that's interesting. So you've invited people to a three hour meeting. Well, of course, what happens then is that everyone's already feeling exhausted and they get invited to a three-hour meeting and of course they they said unfortunately their experience was no one came to this meeting (laughs) and I thought well okay I I firmly recognize that Mm. I recognize that a lot of us we know that the best version of us would attend that meeting and would concentrate and be be attentive but we also know that we we find ourselves overwhelmed so the first part of the book is about trying to to beat personal burnout and I think you know by one estimate I saw in the New York Times recently half of us workers are uh, feeling some degree of burnout mm. and it's not just you know some snowflake generation as you might you might hear accusations but it's everyone it's it's everyone from the boardroom down to you know the the, the lowest status workers so we're, we're witnessing burnout more and more 
in our colleagues. And that's what I was thinking. I was definitely witnessing it in the workers that I was working with. So then the question for me became, what can any of us do to beat burnout? And yes, some of the things are really Silly, like walking meetings. <laughs> One of the best things that anyone can do is turn notifications off on their phone. And it might be that you choose to turn all of your notifications off or just your email notifications. But the people who did that research originally tried to get enough people to turn off their notifications for a week and they couldn't get them to do it. <laughs> and so so based, uh, based on that, they said, OK, if we can't get you to turn notifications off for a week. I wonder if we could get you to turn them off for a day. <laughs> Two years later... Half of those people still had their notifications turned off. So it's just a reminder that sometimes we often feel utterly powerless. We feel like there's nothing we can do. My job is my job. At the end of every week, we feel worn down by the relentless demands. And strangely, just little things, being a bit more intentional about taking a lunch break, setting about trying to to renegotiate the way that we we feel about our jobs can have a big impact. So that was it for me. Even though the book's about team culture, there are some 12 interventions that anyone can do at the start to try and feel just a little bit less frazzled by their job. Yeah, I want to dig into a couple from each of the parts, if we can, just to to highlight each section of the book. There's a recharge. uh, That's what Bruce was just talking about. 12 performance enhancing actions to make work less awful. I love that subtitle. There's sync. (laughs) Eight uh, fixes to make teams closer. There's buzz, the 10 secrets of energized teams. Let's start with recharge. So talk about what it means to practice monk mornings and, and why that's important. Yeah, well, I think a lot of us might recognize that feeling where we actually feel itchy because we can't get our job done. And it might be, you might find yourself telling a friend or a colleague or a partner, I can't get anything done at work. Or just that sense that your to-do list is almost like you could have it tattooed on your arm because it's it just sits there unchanging because emails intervene and you've got you've got meetings to do and you know that you've got this list of things that are sort of beckoning you but you can't get them done. And I think increasingly that's a universal experience. More and more of us feel like that. And so the idea of monk mode in research, we say to people, when have you had a good day at work? Generally, workers say it's when I feel like I've made progress in something meaningful. That's it. Just very simple. I made progress in something. And so here's the two things that exist in opposition. We feel that we, we're getting nothing done. But when we do get something done, it makes us like our job. And this is where monk mode comes in, because a number of people have really hit upon the idea that if we take an hour, maybe 90 minutes, once or twice a week, and we don't allow any interruptions in that. Often it's best not even to open email before you you jump into it. And you set about trying to do your most important thing, uh, your your biggest thing that's sitting on your to-do list, and you get that done first. And look, all of this suggestion might seem so basic and so trivial, but the remarkable thing is the people who try this out say, number one, I was astonished how much I accomplished in that hour. Number two, I feel so happy because that action item that has been sitting number one on my to-do list for four weeks has just been done with an hour and 20 minutes of intensive work. And we just feel like, most of us feel like we want to do a good job, but most of us feel like if we could only do our jobs, then we would we would feel to some extent like more useful. We'd feel like we've got more satisfaction from mm. from the the role that we're in. 
and just doing once or twice a week this uh, this monk mode just seems to be one hack that seems to bring a degree of satisfaction back to our, our um, the jobs that we do. Um, how about the suggestion in this section, Recharge, uh, to shorten your work week? Uh, to a point I made earlier, some listening may think, well, I've got limited control over that. What have you learned from the research you studied, Bruce, about the effects of working long hours? Yeah, I mean, the, the really interesting thing is that I think all of us have got an idea in our head that the humans are infinite and our capacity to work is infinite. And the only thing that really limits us, especially in the sort of the, the knowledge work era, and the only thing that limits us is somehow our willingness to work. So this idea that, you know, you often hear people who get up early, but then they're still working at midnight. And so it looks superficially from the outside like, OK, with well, those people want it more. It's not helped as well by people like Elon Musk, a very, very willing to say that he works 120 hours a week or that, you know, we see people who promote a hustle culture and they they try and they like to make out that, you know, they they're always working. Mm. It's work and sleep and that's it. And so as a consequence of that, we start thinking that we're either indolent if we're not working that much or there's something wrong with us and we don't want it enough. And in fact, I was really intrigued back to that that journey that sleep has been on. I was really intrigued to start looking into research of this. And in fact, there is research on this. There's research into the amount that people produce based on the amount they work. And here's what we start discovering. We start discovering that the longer you work, the less you produce in each of those hours. Mm. And there's a sweet spot. Well, one of the biggest surveys ever conducted into this suggested that if we routinely work more than 50 hours a week, then we actually produce less. If we work more than that, we actually produce less than if we stop there. And in fact, the guy who did the research said fatigue is such that working anything over 50 hours a week starts having an immediate downside. Mm. We, we just, we, we're just fatigued. We don't produce as much. He said, as a result of that, you start reaching a conclusion where you say, OK, so if 50 hours is honestly the limit of what we can do and still be productive, then maybe we should elect to be honest about that and and to say, look, you know, I wouldn't even suggest that any of us work 50 hours. But I think in a world where some of us find ourselves answering email for two hours a day outside of work and we find ourselves working a lot recognizing that what we're doing by sitting at our kitchen table answering emails at 11 p.m. or what we're doing by putting more hours in at the weekend is that we're creating an illusion of productivity. And as soon as you accept that, as soon as you accept the science says that work and fatigue exist in a system, we start thinking about other people whose job it is to do elite work. And, you know, we're coming up to the Olympics this year. And if any of us started thinking about our favorite competitors who we're hoping to see medal this year. We know that when we're thinking of Simone Biles, Simone Biles won't be practicing gymnastics for 120 hours a week. Not at all. She'll be doing some really fabulous training every day, but she knows that an important part of her preparation is rest, is relaxation, it's recovery. And yet when it comes to us doing our jobs, 
we kind of neglect that. We we kind of we we don't believe that recovery is important. And so this was a big deal for me, just mm. recognizing that realistically, if we set out of doing forty hours a week, then a good forty hours a week is probably as good as it gets. In fact, the uh, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics suggests that the average U.S. worker does three hours of work a day. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. Well, that's interesting because then if that's the truth, if you do four and they're four good hours, then maybe you've you've done something good. So I think, you know, just being a little bit more honest about inputs and outputs um, probably is a, is a healthy way for us to think about this. Well, this uh, next part of the book I want to dive into a couple of questions here, Bruce, is designed, uh, Bruce says, to help achieve a sense of belonging at work. And and the work that Bruce cites, examples that he cites in this section, uh, suggests that sense of belonging is as important for our well-being and our lives as our physiological needs. Uh, and you hearken back, Bruce, to Maslow's hierarchy, where belonging is not much more than a, a nice to have. Was, was Maslow wrong about that? Well, it appears so. And, you know, <laughs> that it appears based on more than anything else based on the research and the evidence that that people have been able to do to to pay respect to maslow's work Mm. so the interesting thing is that you know maslow i think sets about saying that food and and shelter were the most important things and then uh, after that the most important thing was the, the sense of belonging but the interesting thing is that every single time that researchers have attempted to work this out they struggle to see that there's any difference that we effectively we we appear to get evidence that belongingness is a really important aspect of us actually feeling human there's one survey of 3.4 million adults that was done uh, by one researcher that suggests that loneliness and a lack of belonging are a bigger contributor to bad health than smoking she said it's the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day being lonely and we it's very easy for us I read one statistic that said that 42% of modern workers say that they don't have a single friend at work. Mm. And so that absence of belonging, it might seem unnecessary, but I suspect most of us would be honest in saying our favorite ever jobs probably were those jobs where we felt a rapport with the people around us, a sort of some degree of camaraderie, some degree of of, yeah, belongingness. And so, yeah, it seems that big academic papers that have set out mm. to verify Maslow's work have probably erred on the side of saying about his work, look, it, it seems that belongingness actually is a really important part of us doing our job well. Mm. There's another suggestion that Bruce gives in this section that I want to touch on. It's to have your meetings. And in case I'm not enunciating clearly enough, that's H-A-L-V-E, your meetings. Uh, what would you say to someone, uh, Bruce, who argues uh, that, well, my meetings, Bruce, are, are different. My meetings are better. Uh, people just need a, a strong agenda and a clear objective and everything will be fine. The interesting thing about that is that broadly, when we ask people who run meetings, whether their meetings are good, almost without exception that they say that their own meetings are good, but everyone else's meetings are bad. (laughs) So there does appear to be some sort of confusion because it can't be that everyone's meetings themselves are good, but everyone else's meetings are bad. There must be something wrong with that. And I think, you know, it's a good reminder that often we enjoy talking about ourselves, (laughs) but find it less interesting talking about other people. And this is 
one of the the things that I think we need to be honest about. I suspect had any of us had the foresight when we were kids to think about the future and to think, you know, what would our life be like in this in this auspicious year of 2020? I think if any of us had, as a children, had have been told that we were going to be spending 16 hours a week in meetings, uh, we'd have been as astonished. What two days a week in meetings, mm. and then if we would able to teleport into to those meetings and see how little attention we're paying in them would have probably said right well this is a version of the future i'm not that excited by and yet this is where we are that you know we spend two days a week in meetings pretending to pay attention to someone from another department that we vaguely recognize and i think the more that we can be honest about that the more that we can actually get back to enjoying our jobs just as i was leaving my, my old job at twitter we set about trying to do exactly this to try and halve the amount of time we spend in meetings and very quickly it forces you to be honest about what the objective of a meeting is and who needs to attend it the the easiest way to half the amount of time that your company spends in meetings is to is to half the number of people you invite to them so if a meeting currently has 20 people and you go down to 10 then what you discover pretty quickly is that look you've halved the amount of time in meetings and for the people in it it becomes significantly more agreeable so i think you know setting yourself the goal of trying to eliminate meetings it might seem initially provocative, but in fact, very quickly, it becomes quite rewarding. Well, in the last section, uh, the section called Buzz, uh, Bruce reveals 10 secrets of, of energized teams. And I want to uh, dig into just one of those in the time that we have here, Bruce. What have you learned about the smartphone's effect on meetings? It's, it's not enough, in other words, to just put them away or, or put them face down on the table, is it? No, that's right. In fact, there was some wonderful work done by one of the leading the, the leading thinkers in this world who was chosen to, to go in and turn around the culture at Uber. So Uber, I think probably quite famously, was having some PR issues. And, and I think appropriately, some of the, the fingers that were pointed were directed at their culture and, and some of the maybe this, the toxic behaviors that were happening. And she observed this brilliant professor called Francis Fry. She observed that when she went into the company a lot of the team were running almost like a, a parallel track to every meeting mm. which was they were on slack or they were on messaging apps and they were messaging each other about the meeting they were in and she said one of the first things we need to do here is we need to make sure that everyone's focused on the meeting we're in and we're only going to rebuild trust if people feel like there's one conversation going on but in fact when you look into the evidence of it we, we can look at people's attention and when when people bring mobile devices into meeting rooms their attention measurably drops uh, if they're if their phone is upturned so they can see the screen it drops even further mm. and so there seems to be something where part of the mere presence of our phone in a meeting room appears to steal some of our attention it steals some of our cognition now it might well be that look you you don't want necessarily to leave your phone at your desk or you want to have it in there but I think understanding this can be helpful because, you know, if our objective is to halve the amount of time we spend in meetings, to make the meetings that we're in feel more satisfying and rewarding, then all of these things, I think, are in service to us getting to a place where work feels less like a burden and feels more enjoyable. Mm. Well, I've got a couple of questions for you, Bruce, that aren't directly related to the book in just a moment. But before I jump into those in the time we have left, anything else from the book you want to make sure that we know? 
the big thing for me, like I've mentioned, was that I really feel that this, this is a big opportunity for anyone to change their workplace culture. You know, quite often, all of us feel a degree helpless. It might be that your boss is a weekend emailer, or it might be that your boss is an evil mill owner, which is something I, de- I describe in the book, you know, is the sort of person, if the, if everyone isn't at their seat at 9am, that your boss gets uh, immediately annoyed by that. Mm. And and I found that by using some of the evidence, by using some of this, the science, it can encourage even the worst bosses to have a dialogue about the environment they're trying to create. So if you say, look, we like being connected in case something goes wrong in the evenings, quid pro quo for that has to be related to us trying to maybe get a bit of freedom elsewhere. So I think trying to use some of this science to have a informed discussion with your boss, hopefully something that we can all set about doing. Hmm. Well, I want you to think over the course of your career, or if it's easier for you, maybe just uh, more recently, the books that have had an impact on you, Bruce. I know you read a lot. Uh, I'd be curious to know what those books are and if you can share why or how they've impacted you. One of the books I've been most moved by in the last 12 months was um, Lost Connections by Johan Hari. Now, anyone who's interested in he's done a, a wonderful TED Talk. He's done two TED Talks, one which was about addiction and then another one which is about depression. Now, whether you're depressive or not, and, and I'm fortunate that I'm not, the themes he talks about in both that TED Talk and in this book are, I think, so powerful they're really about you know what it means to be human and and our experience of humanity in an age of technology i adored lost connections in fact it's one of those books where you find yourself reading the footnotes and trying to do additional reading based on the things that inspired him because i was so moved by it so johan hari's lost connection was probably the book that i've been i've been most impacted by in the last 12 months I'm not familiar with that book. We get a lot of yeah. recommendations having done mm. over 300 plus interviews. That one's never been mentioned. So I look forward to picking that one up and uh, checking it out. Yeah. Start with his second TED talk from last year, okay. because I suspect the way he talks through the, the, the way that we're observing elements of depression in, in society, it immediately piques your interest. And I think some of where he takes it in the book for me is just really, really satisfying and rewarding thinking. Well, before asking my next question, I need to ask a qualifying question. Um, do you do a fair amount of public speaking? Yeah. I mean, okay. I used to through my job. Now yeah. I'm getting more and more approaches to talk about these things. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, a- as a speaker, what are some of your tips, Bruce, for delivering a talk that's going to land with your audience? It's going to deliver what you hope to deliver and stay with them and be memorable. It's such a a key question. More than anything else, it's worth reminding yourself of the reality of conferences compared to the idealized version of conferences. So the idealized version of conferences is that we get a new pen and paper and we turn up and we're intent on taking so many notes and feeling like just a, a cleverer, more informed version. And yet cut 45 minutes into the conference and people are on their phones bored their energy levels are sagging they feel distracted and so always my objective i I said to myself right i want to make sure that i empathize with that and not with me believing that everything i say is really important and fascinating (laughs) so if you start with the perspective my audience are bored and it's my job to deliver this message in a memorable fresh way Mm. your presentation looks different because you often start the former by 
typing out bullet points of the points you, you want to make. And the latter, you start with, how can I entertain people and then make a point? Mm. So you sit there thinking, okay, so if I'm only making three points, what are the three points? And anytime you, you find yourself scrolling through a timeline and something makes you laugh, quite often I think, I wonder if there's anything I can take from, whether I can use that video as a just re-energizer. I presented somewhere this week and albeit I was talking about internet trends. But one of the things I knew was that TikTok, the, the TikTok social media app, a lot of people don't understand it. And, you know, I was presenting some some data about that. But I knew that TikTok can be immensely entertaining. And so I said, look, I'm going to give you a explainer of TikTok in 60 seconds. What it allowed me to do is it allowed me to show about 45 seconds of very, very funny content. <laughs> and what's happened? Number one, people in the room think I'm funny. All I've done is I've showed other people being funny, but they think I'm funny. <laughs> Number two, everyone has laughed. You, you'll know if you ever go to stand-up comedy gigs, you'll know... Anytime you're in an audience and then you laugh, it activates endorphins. People feel better. And so, you know, that's what I would say. I would say start from the perspective that your audience is bored, not fascinated. Mm. You witness parents trying to entertain their kids. You know, you witness any of us trying to tell a story and entertaining our friends. We know we need to get some reward in it. We need to get some payoff. But sometimes when we're writing our presentation slides, we somehow think that what we're saying is important to the audience as it is to us mm. and remembering that it's not is probably the biggest empathetic act that any of us can do wow that's some of the best advice i've heard on this topic mm. thank you for that well uh, in that you just uh, left twitter what is it about a month ago now um right. i'd be curious to know what's ahead for you and your team that you're excited about and, and are able to to share with us yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about trying to, to work on some climate change projects, mm. which I, I suspect there might not be a sort of high paying job in it. <laughs> and maybe there's no pay in it. And I'll need to sort of find another way to earn some money along the way. 100 out of 100 percentage wise of scientists now say that climate change is reality. I think, you know, the vivid images of Australia have reminded mm. us that these things will be on our doorstep before we know it. And I'm really hopeful that we can solve these things, not by nagging people, but by finding incentives, by finding systems, by trading and, and appealing to people's better instincts. So who knows where it'll look like? I've been working on one wonderful thing about eliminating plastic this week, um, which is just filled with joy and, and mm like clever triggers of motivation. And so I've been working on that this week. I'm really interested in working on sort of other projects. So I'm trying to dedicate as much of my time to that as I possibly can. Just want to point out, I'm drinking from a reusable water bottle right now. Come on, exactly. <laughs> these little things. And you know, we're all of us, if we can feel a little bit better about these tiny little decisions that we're making, I'm convinced that we can, in aggregate, we can start moving in the right direction. Definitely, definitely. Well, the book again is called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. 30 Hacks for Bringing Joy to Your Job. I recommend it. His name is Bruce Daisley. Bruce, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to talk to you. For more on my conversation with Bruce Daisley, to check out the links and resources we talked about and more, you can visit the blog post I've created just for this episode. That can be found at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 307 for episode 307. 
Remember, if you're in need of a speaker for your next event covering topics like personal and professional growth, leadership, or common traits among the successful, you know where to find me, Jeff, at readtoleadpodcast.com or readtoleadpodcast.com slash speaker. Next time on the podcast, we'll be welcoming author David Benjamin. He's the co-author of a book called Cracking Complexity, the breakthrough formula for solving just about anything fast. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Oh, 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 o